the nonprofit MBA purpose is to provide new business insights and fresh creative ideas for executive directors and their teams that will help them improve their organization. Here is your host, Stephen Holastic. Welcome, everyone. My name is Stephen Holastic, and I will be your host uh, for today. I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. And for those of you who do not know us, we are the leading provider in the United States of lines of credit to small nonprofits. And I can't tell you how valuable having a line of credit is. I hear it every day from our clients. So if you're interested in learning more, please visit nonprofitmbapodcast.com. And again, it's nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Today, I'm extremely excited to be speaking with Rita Sorenin from Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. For more than 30 years, Rita has worked on behalf of abused, neglected, and vulnerable children, providing leadership for local, state, and national efforts, working to improve the juvenile justice and child welfare systems, while striving to assure safe and permanent homes for North America's children leading the Dave Thomas Foundation for leading the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, a national nonprofit public charity since 2001, and the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption Canada since 2004. Rita works to find permanent families for more than 140,000 waiting children in North America foster care systems. Under her leadership, the foundation has significantly increased its grant making while developing strategic initiatives that act on the urgency of the issue. In 2021, the foundation dedicated more than $40.9 million to grants and award-winning programs such as Wendy's Wonderful Kids, Adoption Friendly Workplace, and National Adoption Day. Rita, welcome to today's Nonprofit MBA podcast. Stephen, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having us. I am. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I think you, I think most people know about the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. I think it's, it's a very, even if you're not in the nonprofit sector, uh, I think people know about it. It's, it's something that's always been well known, don't you think? I think so. And part of that comes from the legacy of our creator, Dave Thomas, and his, uh, you know, he has two legacies, I think. First, starting that the brand, the Wendy's Company, Square Hamburgers and Frosties and Fries that that hopefully most of the country uh, knows about. Um, but as he was getting older and um, starting to, I think, step back a little bit from uh, the work as a CEO, he also wanted to put into action what was already built into the Wendy's Company DNA, which was giving back to the community. He was adopted. Yep. And so he, he created the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption as a separate nonprofit public charity from the corporation to focus exclusively on children in foster care who are waiting to be adopted. So I think that brand awareness comes both from initially the brand of, of the Wendy's company and Dave Thomas, that the, the character of Dave Thomas, uh, the businessman, but the character as well that people knew from commercials. But then as we grew, I think the brand of focusing exclusively, being a one trick pony and saying, this is where we have to put our mission and, and help um, jump in into this really critical cause of children in foster care waiting to be adopted. Yeah, it would be an interesting, interesting podcast. This, this isn't the one topic we're going to cover today, but you know, how a, uh, how someone who started a nonprofit, you know, the fact that his enthusiasm, his determination, 
the hit the how it's per, how pervasive it probably is in the culture of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, isn't it? Exactly. And it has to be. It's the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. We carry his legacy with us every day and we extend that. Family members continue to sit on the board so they're part of governance. We want to make sure we live up to the vision that he created. Of course, that, you know, the, the, the nuances and the tactics behind that vision change as, as we grow, as, as we look strategically at the needs of this very complex child welfare system. But the essence of that legacy of the man who created this and, and the vision behind it absolutely permeates everything we do every day. Yeah. And you know, it, it doesn't have to be after he's gone too. It's that culture of succession planning and building a culture. It helps an organization like, and we're going to be talking about today's topic is how to scale a nonprofit program. And, uh, you know, I think there, it goes hand in hand with succession planning and building an organization in creating a culture that's going to last the, you know, when the executive director or, you know, that's exactly the founder leaves. Right. I think that really helps with the scale, doesn't it? It does. It does. And it helps with that continuity of, of, of both passion of employees, but that continuity of whatever plans are in place, um, they become seamless as you continue to amend and grow and, and finesse those plans. It's that seamlessness, I think, that that legacy piece allows to happen perhaps a little bit easier. Yeah. You know, I, I come from both uh, the, uh, the corporate world and you know, and I, of course, I'm on my own nonprofit uh, boards, but then, you know, I have cl- clients all over the country that are nonprofits. So I speak to them all the time. But uh, it's from, w- from what I've seen, and I know, uh, Rita, you also come from, you worked in the corporate world too, that, uh, that the, I think the culture, the, the stronger the culture that you have in a nonprofit, it, can it will propel the growth of the organization just unbelievable but i can't say the same about corporate america i think it it really helps the growth but but i think it makes a bigger deal in a nonprofit world uh would you agree with that I think so because what you have is that 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 little bit of a difference and I always I always you know my back gets a little bit straighter when people look at a nonprofit and say well you've got to act like a a for profit well you know you've got to act like a business well we are a business you know we we are we are absolutely a money in money out dedicated follow the rules business but but the the, the nuance of difference is that passion for a cause and it's tougher to get I think and I hear this from my friends at the Wendy's company sometimes it's tough to get passionate about a product, yes. which, which of course they're passionate about and, and they, they, they want to do the best they can for the business. But it's a different kind of passion when you're thinking about um, human suffering or human need or filling a gap in a community that, yes, a product could fill temporarily, but having the well-being of citizens for the long term, I think just can drive people in a different way. So when you came into Dave Thomas's organization, uh, how how long had they been in existence already? 
So it was started in 1992. The Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption was founded in 1992. I started in 2001. So a relatively um, short period of time. And and I'll be honest with you, when when um, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption was started, it was really a bit of, and I don't think my Wendy's folks would argue with me, a bit of an extension of the marketing arm of Wendy's. So what they knew best, they didn't know child welfare. Um, they knew they wanted to engage in this conversation of adoption. But what they did know best was marketing and public relations and advertising and in order to move um, a product, right? And so that got extended to the foundation as we were looking at how could we increase the awareness of this notion that children in America were waiting in foster care to be adopted. It wasn't a robust conversation in 1992. So that those first, you know, five to six to seven years were forming an organization and getting the governance going and getting the tactics going, but really looking at that awareness piece. It was in when I came in, we began to think about awareness is great. We have to continue to raise awareness because not enough Americans, when they're thinking adoption, are concurrently thinking foster care adoption while they're thinking infant or international or domestic infant adoption. So that awareness piece was critical. But how could we move from awareness to action? Because children were at astronomical numbers turning 18 in foster care and leaving foster care even though they had been freed for adoption without an adoptive family. So we were failing children year over year over year to provide them families. So how could the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption fill a niche, begin to fill a gap with resources that we could generate to move from action, to move from talk to action, essentially, was what our sort of underlying theme at that point was. Is is any of the money from the Dave Thomas uh, organization uh, come from outside of Dave Thomas? It, how, what percentage comes from the outside? A significant portion. I think there's a misperception that we're a, either a corporate foundation or an endowed family foundation. We're neither one of those. We're an independent nonprofit public oh, charity. Okay. So about today, although this is different than it was initially, up today about 48, 49% of our, our funding comes in from campaigns that are in the Wendy's restaurants that the franchisees hold in order to fundraise from customers. And those dollars come to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. There are some events from the corporation and the corporation um, does provide some sponsorship do dollars for those events, but there's not a steady stream of, of dollars that come from the corporation to the foundation. It's literally the majority of it comes from franchisee campaigns. Like they have a key tag campaign where the customer buys this key tag um, uh, for a dollar or $2, um, you know, 99% of those dollars come back to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. The customer gets to use that key tag to get a free frosty with a purchase throughout the year. So it's a, it's a give and take kind of relationship with the customers, which is brilliant because it engages many more millions of people, whether briefly or not, in this notion of, oh, I'm supporting this nonprofit called Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. Maybe I'll learn more about foster care adoption when I, you know, when I, after I'm done with my, my, the meal that I, the great meal that I have at Wendy's. So um, it's, it's a, this wonderful relationship, but the rest of our dollars come from, um, uh, you know, independent traditional fundraising from other, other foundations, from individuals. We've developed a robust um, and, and mature, I think, um, strategy of fundraising outside of the Wendy's system. Now, when you came in 2001, like you said, yeah. right, 2001, what was the revenue of the organization at that point? At that point, it was probably just hovering around 1.5 million. Wow. 
Yeah. And now you're at 50, uh, 40.9 million. That was what we gave away plus, you know, so yeah, hovering around uh, uh, perhaps a, uh, I think last fiscal year, yeah, was about a $45 million budget. Okay. So, uh, so let's, let's talk about that. I like using real, real world experiences to talk about the subject. So, so now give me, you've been there since then. Tell me the three takeaways that you think really addresses um, how to scale a nonprofit. So for us, you know, I can speak to personal experience here. Um, identifying the need, right? We knew the need was foster care adoption in general, but within that need, there was this huge gap of uh, an unidentified population of children and youth who were not being served well. Um, children age nine and older, children in sibling groups, children with special needs, children who, um, because they've been in foster care for so long, they resist every effort at permanency when people try to get them into families for all the right reasons. They have profound layers of trauma, of grief, of loss, of not trusting adults, of all of those things that go into their experience. And so for us, it was identifying where is it that the system is not serving children well? And there are lots of complexities in this government child welfare system. And that was for us that piece, children at risk of aging out of foster care without a family. That's about 20,000 children year over year over year, not an insignificant number. We also knew at that point what happens to those children when they age out of care without a family. They have, they're at a much higher risk of negative outcomes, homelessness, unemployment, um, undereducation, early parenting, substance abuse, all of those complex societal issues that could be prevented or at least mitigated if we got these children into families. So the first takeaway was identify the gap and find out where you can step in. For us, that was the gap. Now, how do we, how do we, what do we do in that gap? And so we did uh, uh, through a uh, request for proposal program because we're a grant making organization as well. Where are the emerging or where are the best practices or the emerging best practices that, that already address this gap? Because mm. if it's already there, then we'll just generate resources to help fund that. If it's not there, then what can we do to fill the gap? And what we found is, yes, there were some emerging best practices, but nothing um, at, a, at a scale in this country that was addressing the need. So identify the gap, identify the place in the gap. And for us, it was, okay, this is where we, we need to start focusing our, our attention and our resources. What percentage of the, of the existing nonprofits out there uh, of the $40 million budget that you have right now are actually doing best practices where you can say, okay, we don't have to develop the programs. They can do it for us. They, they, we can just give them the money and they're doing really well. So that's been part of that scaling process. Yeah. I think at, in 2001, two, three, when we were developing this program, um, it was, of it, let's say, of 100 organizations, and, and that's a small number, but of 100 organizations that were dealing with um, the adoption, um, uh, uh, adoption, either public or private organizations, probably 2% were actually focused exclusively on this need and were using practices that they thought were working better than business as usual. And at that time, business as usual was public displays of children, put faces on a website, um, uh, you know, have, have a catalog of kids and hope that charismatically families choose those children as opposed to real life social work that works on their behalf. So it was a very small percentage. And now? 
now every we contract with hundreds of organizations. We have a co-investment relationship with some states and with some individual organizations. So 100% of the ones that we contract with use use a program use a model that we created. And that oh. was that, that oh. next phase of creating oh. a model practice that we could put into place, that we could test, that we could evaluate, and then begin to scale it. And so I think eval identific um, you know uh, identification decision of where we will be in that. And then the third takeaway was test it, pilot it, evaluate it, and then take it to scale. Because if we don't know that it works at an evidence-based level, then we're just creating yet another look good, feel good program, but it may not actually work in the long term for for. So, uh, so let's uh, circle back to the very first point that you made. And it, 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 uh, my summary of what you said uh, was you have to really, really understand your purpose, your mission, the market, the the market, so to speak. Uh, you know, you have to you have to understand everything that's going on in your space, so that you know, like almost like take one step back, so that you could take two steps further. That's forward. exactly. Is yes. that is that fair to say? We went underground for a year and really looked at who we were, what was our strategic plan, what was our vision. Absolutely, step back and do take give yourself that time uh, for assessment. And thankfully, our board was willing to do that. Yeah, it's 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 hard because like uh, I think you know so many executive directors out there are doing 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 doing. Yes, they don't have the time for the strategic work. They're just trying to keep their heads above water, and you know and. Uh, and it's the same. I've seen that the same thing happen in, in for-profit businesses too. Yes. So, so you know, maybe you can't put your head down for a year, but maybe you can take a day out a month and work strategically, right? It's critical. It's absolutely critical. You know, efforts without a plan, efforts without a vision and a plan built under that vision are just efforts. You know, if you don't have those end goals that you're driving for and those get described in a business plan, a strategic plan, if you don't have those end goals, then you may be doing good work, but you may not be doing the kind of work that's actually going to make a difference. Yeah, I'm uh, I'm on a board of this uh nonprofit right now. And, uh, and they're, they're small, they're like $400,000 and that, they don't really raise revenue. They, they, they really just get donations and they redistribute it. It's for Halloween costumes. Nice. And, um, and so I'm trying to, uh, help them, um, kind of get out of the super hard work of, of uh how should i put it they're there's they're they're cutting raw they're kind of running a very small nonprofit, and we're trying to you know i'm trying to get them to understand how they have to get out of that day-to-day -day business and you know move into uh building a big organization uh where they're not doing everything you know and so i can see the similarities to what you're talking about mm -hmm. right now yeah um, number two, what's number two that you've learned about how to scale a, a, a nonprofit? So when you do identify that gap, what is it that you are going to do to fill the gap? Can you fill the gap? Or do you need to find someone else to fill it and you, you figure out, you know, another strategy? Um, for us, it was 
what then are we going to do to fill that gap? And that's where we began that identification of emerging best practices or, or existing best practices. We found there was nothing at an evidence-based level. So that's where we created the program. We had the internal expertise to do that, but, but grabbed the advice of others around us as well, really looked at the lay of the land, understood the landscape, you know, that deep understanding of the, the world that you're in at a different level than just um, children are waiting to be adopted. We're going to help them get adopted. But how are we going to do that? So really defining the tactical how, and that's where we created a model program. And then that, that, that next step, I think, is, but once you've done that, whatever it is, whether it's a product, whether it's a program, whether it's a, a new endeavor, you've got to pilot it. You've got to test it. You've got to get that kind of critical feedback. Is this working? And for us, we grew it to such a level we could then put in place a five-year randomized control trial, rigorous evaluation, comparing this model against business as usual. For us, the, the, the key third point was the evaluation and the successful evaluation that came out as a result of that, that springboarded us to taking this to scale. When you actually give money to an organization, uh, how long do you give them to for the evaluation period if they're doing a good job or not? A year, three years? It depends because for us, it's this implementation of the model. And behind that is the hiring of a full-time adoption professional, one or more, in order to implement the model. So it takes time. We don't hire them. The agency hires this, them. We give them the grant to do that, right? And, and so the idea is that um, it's going to take some time, one, to identify the right person, to get that person in place, to train that person. We provide rigorous training because it's an, uh, an evaluated program. Then fidelity of the model is critical. So we provide the training, technical assistance, and support building a caseload, building the relationships with the agencies with whom this individual has to work. So all of that takes some time. And what we say is we should begin to see some, and we put measurable goals in the grant contract that we write, we should begin to see some of some results by, you know, 12 to 18 months. But really in terms of full implementation, it takes a good probably uh, 18 to 24 months and we tend to stay with our grantees for the long term. If they're producing, if they're following the model, if they're doing doing the business that we they say they're going to do, our job is to is to be a good partner in that process. Now, scaling is a different conversation when we've taken it to scale with states. So we've actually contracted with states, um, and there's a co-investment relationship. The idea of this program is taking to scale means ultimately because these children are in the custody of the state or the county, philanthropy can't can't just take over the child welfare system. What it can do though is give it a boost. And so we can provide upfront funding, quick upfront substantial funding that can help a state take this program to scale so that for example, if a state needs 30 of these full-time adoption professionals, we call them recruiters, to address that focused population that we talked about, children most at risk of aging out of care, those individuals carry 12 to 15 children on a caseload. You know, you do the numbers. If there, are, if there are 500 children waiting, how many recruiters will it take? What's the upfront money that we can provide in order to get those recruiters very quickly hired and in place, begin to take this program to scale. But over a period of three to five years, as those, what the state will see or the county will see is begin to see is a return on investment, right? Because to get children out of care and into adoptive homes ultimately is a return on investment for the state or the county. And so they'll begin to take over the majority share of the costs of the, of the, of the program. And so that's the sort of magic sauce in our scaling proposition 
in this complex child welfare world, that's a combination of federal, state, county, public, private dollars and relationships with states. Um, it's different than perhaps a different kind of scale with a different organization, but it's that it's that give and take of a of a public private partnership and a co investment relationship. I have to ask this question; it's a little off subject matter, but I'm just curious. Um, and I don't know if you if you can say this to me. Uh, you, you you can probably say without identifying the state, but who is the state in the United States that is a best practice for adoptions, and who is the worst? There are lots of states that are challenged and, and, and they're challenged perhaps because they've stayed committed to business as usual or because they have such large populations and they've had multiple program efforts throughout the years that they, they haven't really pulled together. I mean, there are federal lawsuits out there um, that, that people can find the states that are under, you know, sort of federal uh, sanction. Is the, is the poorer the state, the worse they are at adoption practices? Is there a correlation there? Sometimes, but not necessarily, not necessarily. So what, I'm sorry, uh, uh, well, so my question was going to be, you know, uh, what, why does a really good state at adoption practices, um, according to the Dave Thomas uh, Foundation, why are they so much better? And why are the ones that uh, are, are terrible so bad? Yeah. And keep in mind, leadership changes constantly. So child welfare commissioners or directors frequently change with the change of, of administrations. Wow. And so we unfortunately have this um, continual leadership turnover. And sometimes it's driven by charismatic leaders who are willing to say, this is unacceptable in our state, that 10,000 children a year, uh, you know, leave foster care with, without a family or linger in foster care, whatever it is. So it takes innovative leadership. It takes a willingness to um, to say business as usual has not been working. Um, and it takes a willingness to really top down and bottom up, understand what the need is for our children. Now, it, again, it's a complex conversation because there's such profound uh, child welfare worker turnover. It's hard work, right? These these folks put themselves at risk every day as they're removing children from, from abusive homes. Um, they're, you know, underpaid, overworked. All of those things go into some of these complex conversations. But the states that do it best recognize the, the, the need for uh, as best as they can, worker compensation, that's working with the legislature to make sure those funds are there, uh, are willing to look at innovative practices and are willing to disregard business as usual if business as usual has not been effective on behalf of their children. And there are there are absolutely states that do that. I will say our own home state, Ohio, when, when our research was released in 2011 and showed that this program worked up to three times better than business as usual for that focused population of children, we went to the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services and said, is there any possible way that we can take the seven privately funded recruiters that we're currently doing across the state of Ohio and scale that up to meet the, the, the need? And they came back to us very quickly. And, and we created the first scaling state relationship in Ohio in 2012. It endures to today. The majority of the costs are, are managed by the state, but the foundation still provides training, technical assistance and support and some financial skin in the game. And there are now nearly 80 
full-time adoption recruiters wow. across the state of Ohio that are addressing this population. It has it has been innovative leadership at, from the governor to the Ohio Department of Job and Family Services. It's a county-based system to county directors as well. So uh, the second point of how to scale, which I know we got off track a little bit, my you know my my curiosity got uh, you know was because of that, um, is systems. Uh, you got to have systems in place. So the first one, of course, was okay. You have to know everything about what's going on. You have to know uh, the the you know what where you're headed. Uh, you have to know where you've been. You have to know the your your marketplace, so to speak. Uh, and then the second thing is you have to build systems in place. Uh, in your case, you were building systems to be able to, um, you know, and I used to, this acronym I used to use all the time, it's called LUDI, learn, understand, uh, teach, and then inspect. So that in your case, you were teaching other people how to have best practices about adoption and I would say that, but I would also say the last thing we could do is march in and say, we know it better. We know better than you what to do, because that's not the case. We needed to learn from each other. So critical to that second piece is developing, building, and enhancing and sustaining relationships, the right relationships. So we weren't marching into a county and saying, geez, how how could you possibly, you know, we were saying, look, we have this, this, this program that we want to test. Would you, are you willing to work alongside us? So developing those relationships as well. Yeah, I guess, you know, you got to stay humble, right? You can't be arrogant. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Because and we then, didn't know. And we still don't know. We may still have things to yeah. learn, even though it's And I guess I, I would assume that what you're really trying to do, too, is have da- data-based decisions. Absolutely. That right? is absolutely That takes true. out all the ob- objectivity out of it. This is data-based. You, and then you go to a state leader and you're like, this is, this is data-based decisions. Just look at the data. Right. And by the way, the, the Ohio Department helped us determine this return on investment strategy so that over about a five and a half year period, they looked at, you know, all of the children adopted through it. We call it the Wendy's Wonderful Kids Program because the Wendy system stepped up and helped us fundraise so significantly for this. So we branded it to recognize that work. So they helped us understand over a five year period based on the investment the department was doing, based on the daily cost of keeping a child in care, based on all of those factors that they could only tell us best. We over a five-year period had saved the state $133 million. So, you you know, there is no arguing with, um, here's research that says it works better, and not just basic research, randomized controlled trial research. By the way, here's a return on investment that the state of Ohio has quantified. And third, we've over the period of the past decade or two developed the, 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 the skill and the finesse uh, internally to help manage this program so that we will set you up to succeed and do what you're morally and legally obligated to do, which is when a child has been freed for adoption, get that child adopted. So uh, again, this is probably the curiosity getting me the best of me off the top topic, but have you noticed in the last five or so years that people have been less, that leaders have been less willing to accept data conclusions that, that, you know, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, no, I didn't, I'm not cutting you off. I just want to make sure I'm articulating myself. And that is in the, in the climate that we've had where people are not looking at data, they're, they're, they're like, I don't care what you present to me. I don't believe it. 
right? Have you noticed from your experience in the last five years, so to speak, that that has been a challenge for your organization? So not so much that in the child welfare system, because quite honestly, look, research is expensive. Again, my board made the decision when part of my board was saying, but the money that we're going to spend on this five-year research, we could just be spending on getting more of these recruiters in place, right? Absolutely. But I went back to my Wendy's folks and said, but would you ever release a product without testing it, without evaluating it, without understanding if you're going to get a profit from it? No, of course they wouldn't, right? That's just not good business. So they understood and they they, they agreed wholeheartedly that this research was critical. So, um, you know, the research for us has become the core component in a, in a, in systems, the child welfare systems where research, because it is so expensive, is not the default. Um, it's sort of, does it look good? Does it feel like it works? Because agencies and public or private don't always have the kind of funds that, that they can put toward research. So it, I think it positioned us maybe a little bit differently um, in that we were willing to make the make that effort and we had the research in hand and it was indisputable. It was, you know, we had, we had advisors throughout. It was through Child Trends, which is a preeminent child welfare research organization in Washington, DC. You know, we had, we had the, I think the, the credibility from the research. And so even today, and I know exactly what you're saying when the world's gotten a little bit crazy and data doesn't matter, you know, here's what I believe, right? And, and if you don't believe what I believe, then you're wrong. Um, I think in, in this world, it has been to our advantage because it is so, um, there is, there, there can be such a lack of research frequently in, yeah. in the system. Yeah. Uh, uh, third area, uh, that for scale, uh, what would you say that third bucket would be? So the third area is once you have that research in hand, what, however you go about that, it's testing it, refining it testing it, refining it, and making sure that, you know, just because it worked three years ago doesn't necessarily mean in this instance, it's the right thing. Well, what we found is for us, that's been that internal development of making sure we have the, the staffing um, available as we grew, making sure we had the systems in place, the learning management systems, the data management systems, the performance management systems. So it's it's almost going back to 2001, two and three, when we were looking internally, continuing to look internally and making sure that as we're scaling up a program, we're also appropriately scaling up ourselves in order to accommodate that program. So you, it's constant, re, you know, it, it's that constant improvement process. What do you think is the number one problem that, or that you now at your size and at your, with your experience level that your organization struggles with right now? Um, good question. That's a great question. I think we're, we're looking at a lot of sustainability. So just because a state is scaled, leadership changes, budgets change, recessions hit, you know, whatever it is, there's always an excuse to say, well, it's easy to cut this program. So how do we manage sustainability of these scaled programs? Um, it doesn't, you know, we think it, it takes five to seven years to get it truly embedded scaled and embedded as business as usual, but it's always at risk. So that sustainability issue um, for us as we grew, um, looking at, you mentioned this earlier, succession planning internally, of course, you know, not just the CEO position, but leadership positions top down. And so staff development and, and, and um, staff support, staff encouragement, we've grown significantly over the past five years um, and uh, have added, I think, 
uh, more than 30 employees. That's a lot over a short period of time for a relatively small nonprofit. So looking at those, again, I think the internal issues that folks tend not to want to look at or talk about, um, you know, succession planning and, and, and staff development. And, um, but I think externally it's that sustainability issue and certainly financial sustainability for us as well. Yeah. You know, it's, it's funny because, you know, execution isn't sexy or fun, (laughs) you know, it's, you know, new ideas, implementing them. It's, you know, the beginning of an organization, you have this incredible strength and power and it's exciting. And then when you get into like, if you follow the methodology that we're kind of talking about today, it, 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 it kind of loses its pizzazz or whatever word you want to say. Uh, it gets less sexy and, you know, but it's really the key to any organization is incredibly great execution, isn't yes. it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And now, you know, again, the past couple of years have pointed out some really critical issues that we're addressing now. There's an overrepresentation of black children in the child welfare system, right? Racial equity, social justice, all of those issues that have surrounded child welfare from its inception, but it became an elevated conversation for all the right reasons. I think it always surrounded the work that we did, but we really hadn't focused on it. And so we've stepped back and really began to dig into what is our responsibility in this conversation of racial equity and social justice internally as an organization and externally, where do, where can we, should we, must we use our voice, use our programs in order to in, in, uh, advance racial equity and social justice as well. And so that's now- not something we were all thinking about five years ago. Yeah. I mean, now uh, what percentage of the budget is actually spent on research since it seems that it's become a bigger culture to your organization now is as the, I mean, it sounds like the board is all bought in now to the idea that, Hey, this is, this is the key for us. The research, it it drives, it exponentially drives everything else that's out there. Uh, Have you noticed that the, the percentage that you're spending on research now has increased it is and i don't know the exact figure i can certainly get that back to you but yes because we're doing we're doing attitudes research what are americans attitudes on foster care and foster care adoption that will drive our our awareness campaigns what are what are professionals attitudes on permanency what we find when we're implementing this program is there are some child welfare professionals that say you know what it's okay if this child stays in care and ages out it's okay some kids are unadoptable so we need to get the handle on judges, child welfare leaders, the social workers, we had to get a handle, a real handle on attitudes. Do we need to start working on attitude work with the professionals that we assume are all in and may not be? So attitudes research, certainly ongoing um, post-adoption. We just did a small scale what are the outcomes of children adopted through this program? Are they still with their families? Are they are they getting an education? Are they in school? Are they healthy and thriving? It was a small piece, but it's led us to believe we've got to do a much larger piece on what are the outcomes of these children so that we can potentially drive post-adoption programs that support these families. Absolutely. Um, research uh, is both, a, has always been, data-based work has always been critical to us, but a growing piece of um, where do we need these pockets of true long-term evaluation to continue to drive the program? So what I've heard today are, are basically three key ingredients uh, to scaling your nonprofit. First one is really, really understand your market, understand your strategy, your strategic direction, where you're headed, you know, how you're going to get there. Number two is uh, uh, great execution. 
just really executing on your, on your strategic plan, staying focused. And then the third one is refinement. Just keep, you know, diving in really, you know, I, I find execution exciting and I love it when I can get to the minutest detail and really dive into that one area that I couldn't do it early on, you know, I, that, you know, so I can, you know, I could, I, to me, that's fun and that's exciting. You know, I don't, I don't like the, you know, having to run around with my head cut off, trying to accomplish all this other stuff. I'd rather just kind of focus on one or two things. Uh, yeah. I don't know how everybody else feels about that out there, but I think one's attitude and how you approach business or, or life is, is probably the most important thing um, that you can do. If you can address your attitude about what excites you then and your organization, then the, the rest will fall into place. Have you found that yourself too? Absolutely. Look, this is a this is a, a field where you hear the negatives every day, right? What happens to these children and, and uh, the abuse that they suffer mm. and, and the further abuse in systems sometimes. And so it can drag you down. Um, it's, it's, it's maintaining exactly what you said, this sense of a, a positive attitude toward, but here's what we can do. We can recognize all of the horrible things that happen to these children and we can be absolutely, must be absolutely empathetic to the families, to the children, to the systems that are complex. But we have to keep a sense of joy about this, a sense of hope about it. Uh, you know, be happy here, be happy elsewhere, because we've got to, we've got to drive a positive attitude that life can change for these children. Ab, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, I think that brings up a good point. And I think you should make sure that you are uh, talking about and celebrating on a weekly or monthly basis, something that went really well in your organization. Because I think, you know, we're all putting out fires, we're all dealing with problems and you forget it, it. It really drags you down, and I think you needed to be reminded the good that you're doing. That's exactly it. And we we do a lot of storytelling here as well. Yeah, our job is to show the success stories of of what has happened through this program and other programs that we do. And so, constantly doing videos on successful families and sharing those with staff and sharing those with board members and sharing them with the public, of course, but making sure that we're doing the kind of storytelling. Uh, about these children and families that is uplifting. That is, it's, and it's not just rose-colored glasses. These are real stories about real families that have been impacted. Yeah, and I think, you know, nonprofits always do a good job with storytelling. I don't, I think that they mostly think that they do the storytelling to, for, to raise more funds and they forget that they should be doing it for their internal employees to continue to have that passion. Because let's face it, when you're growing a nonprofit, I think, it all comes down to willpower, right? And, you know, that willpower after a period of time can wane and uh, maybe not so much from the executive director and the leaders, but from the other rest of the people, because we all know that a lot of times they don't get paid that well. Exactly. <laughs> you know? Exactly. And so, pointing out how critical, you know, there was a point in time where I, long time ago, not my current team, but somebody on the finance team is like, oh, you know, I'm just depositing checks. I'm just, you know, right. Yeah, but that just... That work that you're doing, we're a money in, money out organization. You are absolutely core. So remembering and making and sharing with people who may feel like the mundane, you know, computer work at their desk is just this. No, it's ju not just that. It is exactly that that helps keeping, that helps keep this mission alive. 
If you were to write a book today, what would be the topic that you think that you would cover? For me, um, this journey has been all about relationships. It has been all about um, um, whether it's the relationship with the Wendy system and the Wendy's family, whether it's relationship with the child welfare system, whether it's the internal relationships, the external ones. There's relationships that also bolster on uh, that sort of colleague relationship. So how do I, how do I, how do I get um, a boost from somebody that I know is going through the same thing? Or how do I boost someone who's going through that same thing? It's something in there in relationships, uh, you know, that drive, drive successful missions, I think. You know, and I think it's funny you should say that because um, I just got back from Kenya. I was there for two weeks, right? Most unbelievable vacation. I'll Mm -hmm. never have another one like it. And I, I kept the blog uh, cause I, 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 because I was, I said so many of my friends and relatives, they'll probably never get a chance to go. And this is a way for them to experience it. And it, it started off really small. And then every day I got bigger and bigger and bigger. And when I look back at the blog, what everybody says, I mean, I, I had people that were reading the blog with their family at their dinners tables and because it was experience was so unbelievable. And they were, I had people saying, Where, where's your blog today? Right. <laughs> they were so excited about, it. and I had people, you know, I'd be talking to this one, I was talking to this one woman the other day and I was telling her about this story and she goes, Oh, you mean with Wilson? That was the name of a guide. It was one of our guide. And what, to bring it back to what you're saying is when I, when one person asked me after they read the blog and because I did come up with a summary of what I kind of learned from the trip, but they were like, what, what was your takeaway? And my, my takeaway, which I didn't put in there because I talked about people almost more than I talked about the animals. Yep. Yep. And, and when I walked away from that and I think it's, I think it's we're all experiences due to COVID. And that is we realize, most of us, how important people are in our lives, right? And you're talking about relationships. And so I think there's a correlation between what's happened to us as a, as a, as a world in the last three years and our realization. Hey, listen, in Kenya, people, are so happy and it's because they're they're so close they're you never i never met a kenyan person without a smile on their face and it's because they help each other don't forget the commercials you see about a starving person it i didn't see that at all and i was all over the country you know and they're very very happy in kenya and i came home to the united states and people are at each other's throat and unhappy because they're sitting in these huge homes by themselves. And, and so I think relationships are important. And it is the key to the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program and the reason it has been able to scale. We are supporting more than 500 individual Wendy's Wonderful Kids recruiters across the United States and Canada. Key to that model is we give that social worker that 
skilled professional time to develop a relationship with the children on their caseload. And through that relationship comes the identification of potential adoptive resources that are already in that child's network, former foster parents, extended family members, best friends, families. It is, it is key to the, that that program. So the extension of that relationship strategy, if you want to call it a strategy, is is what has made, I think, the, the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption successful and certainly the programs within it. Oh, good. Well, listen, it was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. I'd thank like you. to thank so very much, Rita uh, Sornin. Am I pronouncing that correctly? You did Rita? it perfect. <laughs> good. From Dave Thomas's Foundation for Adoption for coming on today's podcast. If you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like today's podcast, please give us a review on your podcasting app. It helps us get the word out. It really, really helps in the algorithms for ranking. We're, you know, the nonprofit MBA podcast has become extremely popular. Um, it's, it's amazing how many people are listening to it now. It's definitely in the thousands. And if you're also, if you're looking for a line of credit for your nonprofit, you can call us at 862-207-4118 or visit our website at nonprofitmbapodcast.com. Rita, if anyone, gets, if anyone wants to reach out to you, how would they go about doing that? Absolutely. They're welcome to reach out um, by email to me directly. It's Rita underscore, or Rita dot Sorenen, S-O-R-O-N-E-N, at davethomasfoundation.org. They can also reach out to the 800 number, our 800-ASK-DTFA, and folks will get that information to me. Great. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for the conversation. I enjoyed it. And I want to say to all those listeners that are out there, um, thank you for all the hard work that you guys are doing to make the world a better place. Certainly over the last couple of years, it's, we've, we've uh, fallen and we need help by leaders like all of you who are doing all the heavy lifting. And I want to personally thank you. Uh, Rita uh, is doing her part every single day as well. And I, you know, I always need to try to do my part and be a better person to help the world. And I, I try to do that on a consistent basis, but I want to thank you all, but don't forget, you got to take care of yourself first. You take care of yourself first and then you help the rest of the world. So um, everybody get outside, smell the roses, enjoy your life a little bit and then get back to your mission. I hope today's podcast was helpful for everybody who was out there. Everybody have a fantastic day. 